family. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. <clears throat> Matthew 21 once again. And Erica, I'm so sorry. Would you do me a big favor whenever you get a chance? I got a water sitting over there. It doesn't have to be now. I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Matthew 21. And for the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus Christ revealing Himself as King in the last week of His life, coming to Jerusalem. And we've seen three symbolic actions. Two thus far and one today. And we're going to examine that. The symbolic action of Jesus Christ revealing Himself to His covenant people. But here, specifically to His apostles Notice with me the Word of God, which is infallible for our good and our growth in the glory of God today. Verse 18 of Matthew 21. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Please pray with me. God, we come before you in the strong name of your Son. Um, the only name under heaven and earth that's given among men by which we must be saved. I pray that he would be exalted and lifted up. Oh, Father, fill us with your Spirit. Help me, God, to, uh, to show Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that we might come away here today... Um, seeing the goodness of Him, the goodness of You, the glory of God. Help us to do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I remember going to college and getting my bachelor's degree. And for some reason, going to get a BA in Bible, I don't know why there was such focus on developing mission statements and vision statements, uh, statements of purpose, but there was a lot of emphasis on that. And I can certainly see the reason why that would be important, especially in the business community. So the idea is rather than having the different departments of a business or different individuals running about in their each their own way trying to accomplish the task ahead of them, if you have a unified statement of purpose that shows what the whole company is driving at, every individual and every organization can look to that purpose statement and conform itself and all of its actions and ask itself, am I driving to that one purpose? Because the reason is, it's easy with all the difficulty of business, all the, um, the different things that we have to do to be focused on things that aren't primary. And the same thing is true in the church. The same thing is true in the church as these disciples, for instance, are getting prepared for their Master and their Savior to be crucified. Jesus knows the propensity of our heart 
to be focused on things that aren't primary, but to be driven to other things. And in this text, I believe we have some, some show of that. That Jesus Christ points primarily to faith. Faith in God, faith in the gospel as the primary thing that the disciples ought to be going toward. And to show this, I want to see that the central idea of this text is that Jesus Christ curses a tree demonstrating, notice, the end of faithlessness. The end of faithlessness, the lack of faith and belief. But He also gives them promises to encourage them cultivating faith. And the purpose of this text for us today is it's designed to show us the barren end of unbelief. The fruitlessness that comes from a refusal to obey and to believe the good news of the Gospel. And also it's given to show the sufficiency of faith for the Christian life. The sufficiency of faith for the Christian life. And so first and foremost, what this text calls us to do today is that all of us, we must and you must individually heed the warning of the fig tree. We must heed the warning of the fig tree. In verses 18 and 19, I want to say just right up front that this fig tree symbolizes and represents Israel. Old covenant Israel at the time of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Now, before we get there, I just want to set us in our larger context our larger context. The context of chapter 21 through 28 is one where Jesus Christ is revealing Himself to be the Messiah, in particular to the chosen city of Jerusalem, and He's rejected by doing that. This text takes place probably on Tuesday of Passion Week. Again, we are three days away, depending on how you count, from Jesus Christ's crucifixion and death. And because the time is so short, Jesus Christ is busy revealing Himself to Jerusalem and the covenant community there. He's revealing Himself through the symbolic acts that we see. He is in the temple teaching daily on who He is and what the kingdom of God is. And here, we have these symbolic acts that Jesus is revealing Himself through. The first was in verses 1-11. through As Jesus Christ reveals Himself as the King that was prophesied to come to His people in the Old Testament. And that King would be a humble, meek, lowly King that accepts any who come to Him. Second symbolic act was Jesus Christ cleansing the temple. Where He showed Himself to be again the fulfillment of the prophesied Reformer of God's people. That He had the zeal of God's house consume Him and drove out those things that did not exalt God in His place of worship. And all of this is pushing us towards the climax of the story of all of the Gospels, which is our Savior by the providence of God and the hands of wicked men being nailed to a tree, dying and raising again. He will be rejected by the people He came to. He will be rejected by the very people He revealed Himself to 
the most. And today we come to the third symbolic action. The third symbolic action. And here we have a little bit of a difference. Jesus is again revealing Himself and what He does, who He claims to be, but He's revealing Himself to a much smaller group of people. In fact, He's revealing Himself to His apostles. The scene is fairly simple. Jesus, on the next day, after He had cleansed the temple... He is walking towards Jerusalem to engage in another day of ministry. And as He's walking, we read in verse 18, He was returning to the city and He became hungry. He became hungry. And He sees in the distance, this being early spring or so, He sees a tree that is bearing probably an unusual amount of leaves for that time of year. And he might expect, as Micah 7 says, to find a first ripe fig on that tree. It was not the season for figs, as we see in Mark, for full ripe figs. But the the leaves and the foliage of this tree probably indicated that fruit might be on that tree. And as Jesus comes, he examines it more closely and he finds there is nothing to eat there. He finds nothing to eat. And what I want us to notice first is that Jesus does an act that is totally unexpected. Or probably should be totally unexpected as we've read the Gospel accounts thus far. We probably expect Jesus to heal or to do good to His creature. Because that's what Jesus does almost in every occasion, doesn't He? When we see people coming to Him for healing, if they say like the leper, Jesus, I know that You're able to heal me, but if You will, I will be healed. And Jesus always says, I will be healed. He always brings perfect healing, compassion to His creature. But here, we see Jesus doing something else. He pronounces this tree that did not bear fruit to be forever barren. To never bear fruit again. And even stronger, in the Gospel of Mark, Peter says this, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, that you cursed, has withered. Jesus Christ, our our good and glorious and gracious Savior that always did good to everybody that ever came to Him, in this instance, He curses this tree. And notice what takes place. Not only does it not produce fruit, but it withers. Not only does it wither on the limbs, not only do the leaves fall off to the roots, this tree is made dead in an instant. Dead in an instant. And... The thing I want us to realize here is that this is so contrary to how Jesus Christ typically does miracles that it should catch our attention all the more. It should make us realize that something very significant is going on here that we should pay attention to. We ought to pay attention to this text. The author of life and salvation brings a sign of judgment and death to the attention of the disciples and to us this morning, but for us to understand this, we, we have to ask, we have to inquire, what does this symbolic act mean? 
When Christ curses the fig tree, there would be some secular commentators of this that would say that Jesus merely was in a fit of anger because He was so hungry and cursed this tree because it didn't have anything for Him to eat in the morning. Now, I would say that all of us probably don't read our Bibles that way. See, that that's a ridiculous conclusion to come to. But we should see it as ridiculous because we know our Old Testaments. Because throughout the Old Testament, Israel itself is always compared to a fig tree, an olive tree, or a branch of a grapevine. Something that was planted by God that was designed to bear fruit. God gave the means of worship, the means of grace, the oracles of God, the Word of God, the prophets to Israel. And these things ought to have borne fruit. But they didn't. I'm going to take you to two examples just so we see it clearly. These are the two clearest examples in my mind, but there are many examples of this. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Now, as you're turning there, we also have Micah chapter 7 that Joey read this morning, and I would commend you to read back over that and see the parallels, but I think that Isaiah 5 is even clearer as we think about this text and we try to meditate on how does the Old Testament inform this sign? The disciples, I believe, should have been thinking of Isaiah 5. Notice with me, I'm not going to read the whole passage for time's sake, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 2 and then go down to verse 7. Notice what is said. Let me sing for my beloved, God singing, my love song concerning this, his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes. But what did it yield? But it yielded wild grapes. Grapes not, not fit for consumption. Not the kind of fruit that the vineyard planter intended. Notice verse 7. We have interpretation. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. An outcry. Again, we have the same image here. God coming to Israel symbolizes a vine branch. And not finding the fruit that he intended. Jeremiah chapter 8 is... The other passage I'd have us turn to, Jeremiah chapter 8, it's the next prophet in the Old Testament, and I want us to focus in on verses 12 and 13. Notice in 12, we see the moral state of Israel. Jeremiah says here, through the Lord... Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Notice verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away 
from them. The imagery of the Old Testament we should see is very consistent with an interpretation that this vine, this fig tree rather, is apostate, unbelieving Israel. But this same imagery is carried over into the New Testament. Not only in the Old Testament, but Matthew himself picks up this theme and in several instances repeats it. We might remember John the Baptist in chapter 3. What does he say to the scribes and Pharisees coming out for his baptism? It says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. But I think the closest and best interpretive text we have, if you'll turn with me back to Matthew 21, is at the end of this chapter. Matthew 21, we have in our Bibles a full imagery, symbolic imagery, to help us interpret what this fig tree meant. And in Matthew 21, we have two instances where Jesus uses this. Notice, in verses 33 through 42, Jesus gives his second parable that we'll look at in coming weeks of the tenants, who again are planting a vineyard, and the planter of the vineyard hires men out to take care of it, but they don't take care of it. Notice verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Producing its fruits. The explanation of this text is very clear in my opinion. If we compare Scripture with Scripture, we come away with the unavoidable conclusion that Jesus Christ in cursing this fig tree is giving us a visible prophecy, a sign of what is soon coming to take place to the people of Israel. Jesus Christ came to His people His own people, as John 1 tells us, looking to gather them under His wings, but they were unwilling. And as we'll see in Matthew 23, therefore their house is left to them desolate. Israel had the appearance of spiritual life like this fig tree. It had leaves that would seem to indicate that there would be an internal, real, spiritual fruit being born. Again, they had the sacrifices given to them. The substance of those sacrifices pointing to Jesus Christ. They had the Word of God. They had the priesthood that prefigured our great High Priest coming to us. They had all the trappings that you would expect if anywhere had spiritual fruit, it would be there in the temple in Jerusalem. But upon examination... No fruit was there. Only the external things with nothing growing in the heart. And all appearance, the cursing of this, all appearance of spiritual life will be removed from Israel. And we know this took place in history, don't we? In 70 AD, Titus came and tore down Jerusalem. All the stones of the temple were turned over. And even the external form of the spiritual life that once Jerusalem had was taken away from them. It withered to its roots. And we should ask again, now that we see that this fig tree represents Israel, we have to go to another question, don't we? 
What, what does the fruit represent? What fruit should have Jesus found there? I would tell you plainly, the fruit that Jesus didn't find was Israel's refusal to believe the Gospel. Refusal to believe the Gospel as the primary thing that was missing. Now, to say it more clearly, what the fruit that He didn't find is it wasn't as if Jesus was coming to Jerusalem and expected to find on this tree moral perfection from His people. And He didn't find moral perfection, and therefore they were cursed. Israel was not cursed because it didn't have its quiet time every morning. Israel was not cursed because it had um, not as much joy as it should have had in the Lord. It didn't pray enough. It was not a lack of works primarily that Jesus saw as a total lack of spiritual fruit. And we should see this clearly because what did Jesus Christ come to do on this earth? He came to save sinners. Over and over we see that Christ Jesus did not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. For three and a half years, Jesus appeared in His public ministry to call all men to Himself. He healed all that came to Him. And I will tell you, if Jesus Christ came to look for fruit of moral uprightness, everyone in this room and every person throughout all of human history that is named the name of Christ would be withered to its roots in hell forever. It is an absolutely impossible thing that Jesus was looking for moral perfection here. It was a failure to believe the Gospel. Again, Christ, His whole ministry is predicated on the fact that His people are sinful and need grace. And this is what the Apostle Paul, for instance, says was the problem with Israel. Listen to Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. Paul says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Paul tells us. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. The terrifying lesson of this fig tree is that the Jewish nation was at the point of no return. Grace had been offered time and time again, and they will crucify their Messiah. In 70 AD, they will have the temple, the sacrifices, and Jerusalem itself taken away. The unbelief of the Jews ends with a total withering of all spiritual life, external and internal. But this image should not be a mere historical fascination to us. That is, the imagery of the fig tree for sure symbolizes Israel particularly, but generally it is a graphic warning to all that named the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, as we think about the imagery of no fruit being born on the tree... We should see that this very imagery is used by the Apostle Paul to warn the Christian church 
primarily denominated by Gentiles at this point, not to forsake faith in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And again, I hope that this further helps you to see what I believe is the prime point of this text, that Jesus Christ was seeking faith and repentance. Faith and repentance is the primary fruit of the Christian life. Notice Romans 11, 17 through 20. Speaking of Israel, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now, I want us to think about that imagery here. As believers, Gentile believers in this room, we were not created a brand new tree planted in a brand new vineyard, okay? But we were grafted into the promises given in the Old Testament to the Jewish people, okay? So that we are not a new entity that replaces the church. We have become the true Israel, grafted into the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, notice verse 18. You've partaken of all those promises. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted, and that is true. Notice this. They were broken off because of what? Their unbelief. They're broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Jesus Christ came to His people seeking the fruit of repentance and belief in Him. He found it not. He found it not. And it's a warning that we see here to to forsake Jesus Christ and to be an external member of the covenant people. That is, somebody that has partaken in baptism that publicly professes Jesus Christ as Lord, but not to have any faith in the heart is a fruitless tree. It might have the appearance of leaves on it, but it has no fruit coming from it. And the warning here is that there is a time unknown to me that in every individual life, unbelief will be crystallized There is a point of no return if unbelief is cultivated and nurtured in the heart. Now, I don't mean lack of belief, but unbelief. Unbelief. The sum of this is that the fig tree serves as a powerful reminder of the end of unbelief. Without faith in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, all that is left is death and decay. And this is what we've seen. Constant rejection. Constant offer of grace by our Savior. And finally, there will be rejection. And that will result in death. And that should speak as a warning to all of us today. But conversely, not only does this passage call us to be warned about the end of unbelief, it encourages us to grow in our faith. To cultivate Faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is 
the most difficult part of this text, in my opinion. And as I studied, and I text Brother Caleb throughout the week a lot, um, it's difficult to see, at first glance, I believe, what the connection is here. Jesus curses a fig tree. It clearly represents Jerusalem and their decay because of unbelief. But why then does Jesus go into a teaching of mountains being cast into the sea if you you have faith and you don't have doubt? Why does He go in to give us another encouragement, as wonderful as it is, that whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive? It's because I believe the connecting point through all of this is faith. The warning of unbelief, but the encouragement, again, to grow in the faith that we have in Christ. And so, as we consider verses 20 through 22, I I hope we see this connection. And if not, I, I hope that you see that I've seen truth, even if it perhaps is in the wrong text. Okay. In particular, the apostles themselves are encouraged to cultivate faith. Notice in verses 20 through 21, we have the apostles coming to Christ after they see this fig tree wither. And it's interesting to me that they don't say, Jesus, why does the fig tree wither? Right? They say, well, how does it wither? (laughs) Right? They're, They're more enamored by the power that was shown in Jesus Christ cursing this fig tree than they are the reason behind it. And in part, I think it's safe for us to say that the disciples are kind of constantly missing the point of what's going on here. They seem to be enamored by the great physical manifestation of power shown in this text. But Jesus, as the wonderful and great teacher, the prophet of our faith, uses even this perhaps misunderstanding to point them to the main idea. They say, how the fig tree withered. And Jesus uses this to show them the necessity for the Christian life and for the apostles' ministry that they will carry on after his death of faith. Okay, And this is, again, particularly to the apostles, I believe. These are the men gathered around Christ at this moment. This sign is shown to them. And they will work great signs. Now, if you're suspicious of that, 2 Corinthians 12.12 tells us very clearly that the apostles had a sign-working ministry that other people don't have. Okay? That 2 Corinthians 12.12 says this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and many mighty works. Okay? And so Jesus here is showing them an analogy from the lesser of the greater. That this lone fig tree on the mountain, Jesus Christ cursed it, withered, but he says that this mountain, that this fig tree stands upon even. If you have faith and don't doubt, it will be cast into the sea. And isn't this congruent with what we see Jesus Christ teaching in John chapter 14, right? That greater works than these will you do, talking to his apostles. And God would continue to work through the apostles in doing miracles in the church. We read this throughout the book of Acts, that the apostles, they certainly go into Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same message that Christ himself preached. But 
On top of that, God Himself confirmed the word that was preached by these men through miracles. They had a particular and unique function in the early church to be miracle workers to confirm the word. Now, we see this in the early church very clearly. I'm just going to read quickly from Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 30, that says this. This is a prayer meeting by the church after the first arrest of James and Peter. And now, this is the prayer, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders were performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. These miracles and preaching were performed side by side. But, as often was the case, not only did these miracles end with a confirmation of those who believed, but sometimes it ended with a pronouncement of judgment. Much like Jesus Christ here pronouncing judgment on the fig tree, there are times when miracles would be performed and judgment would be pronounced through those miracles. One of the clearest examples I can think of is Acts chapter 13 as uh, Bar-Jesus, a false prophet, is trying to draw away the pro-council's faith from the Lord. Paul says, darkness will fall upon you. And he became blind. And calls him an enemy of the truth and a son of wickedness. And at the very end of Acts 28, almost, almost the last verse, miracles are performed, signs are performed, preaching has been done, and Acts ends on this note. Paul speaking to the Jews in Rome, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. They will Listen, they were given, the apostles, a unique and impossible calling by fleshly standards. They were to write the New Testament. They were to evangelize the world, lay the foundation of the church and all of its practice. And Jesus Christ in this text says, you're going to go do that, but there's one place that you're going to find the power to do the impossible thing that God has called you to do. And that is by clinging by faith to my promises. You believe and do not doubt these things will happen. Believe that I have commissioned you and sent you. And I surely will work. But this text is not just for the apostles. We should see here the apostles were called to do wonderful, miraculous things. But there is miraculous calling for every Christian. Every regular Christian. As Joey taught Sunday school this morning, I, I confess that oftentimes, oftentimes, where I have anger towards the disobedience of my children and the anger at times and times of a lack of belief seems impossible to overcome. I feel driven by it at times. And in part, we should see that and say, by fleshly standards, it is impossible to overcome. More miraculous, I would tell you, church, than moving physical mountains and having them plucked up by the roots and cast 
into the sea is moving sinners like you and me to continual faith and repentance in the gospel. We, as we consider our calling, it may not be to, it, it is not to write new revelation of God. It is not to go and heal the blind and cast out demons. We're not, we don't have that particular calling, but we are called to do things just as miraculous. And brothers, sisters, do you know that we have powerful enemies working against us? To highlight the impossibility of the regular Christian life, do you know that the world, the world is against you? Against you. Hates you. Desires nothing but for you to forsake your God and follow Vanity Fair and all of its pleasures and amusements. Do you know, Christian, that beyond that, the devil is against you. And he hates you. He's described as a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. He's described in the Old Testament as Leviathan. The great sea monster that no man could ever tame. And he's against you. He's against your faith and repentance. And to make it all the more impossible, your flesh has remaining corruption in it that is drawn away to the world. Drawn away to the devil. Now, in that kind of situation... We should see the impossibility of the Christian life, especially in contrast with the perfect commands that God gives us. Perfect and good commands that God gives us. I'm trying... The devil's after me. The world's after me. My flesh in part wants those things. And yet God says, you must love me with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You're called, Christian, commanded, rather, to kill your anger that you experience towards your spouse and your children. You're called to not live for yourself, but whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, to do all to the glory of God. And I would add, to the glory of God alone. That's to be the focus of your inner heart. You're to sacrificially give yourself for your family and your church. You're to love one another. These things are impossible. Are they not? But we are directed to the same place of power. Faith. Unbelief brings withering and death, but Spiritual life, true spiritual life, Christ's life, the author of life, flows through our veins, again, not by our quiet time, not by our trying harder, but through faith in Him. Oh, the Gospel of John, I think, clearly says this. John chapter 15. Again, we are drawn to another example where Jesus Christ calls His covenant people branches attached to a plant, we are branches of the vine. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus Christ says this to His church. On the last sermon He gives them before He leaves this world, He says, Abide in Me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Brothers and sisters, to repeat myself, it means nothing else but to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Brother, brothers and sisters, I know as I look at your faces today that you want to grow in your obedience to Jesus Christ. I know that because I have the same spirit dwelling in me and the same corruption dwelling in me. I know that you feel fruitless at times. I know that about you. And I know that you desire to grow in fruit. But this is done and accomplished only by believing the gospel. By believing the gospel. And that might seem contrary to you. But it's only through faith and knowing that God loves me before I loved Him that I have any kind of motivation to go and do what I'm called to do. To put the Word of God in my heart. To love my neighbor as myself. To attempt to do everything for His glory. Fruit is only born by abiding by faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. (laughs) We believe that we're loved by God, that Jesus has really, truly made a way for us to be fully, finally, and completely forgiven. And we rejoice in that truth. And if we do that, we will bear fruit. Infallibly. You show me a Christian that is in the continual process of repentance and faith. And I see many examples before me, and I'll show you a Christian that bears fruit. And verse 22, Jesus points us away from the miraculous necessarily, the particular miracles, to the life of faith. Prayer. Prayer being the chief manifestation of faith in our God. Now, as Jesus says this, it says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, for the Pharisees in Jerusalem, they engaged in external prayer, did they not? They prayed for things. But their prayer, as we see in chapter 6, is, is for show. They're praying to themselves. They're trying to gain the approval of fellow man. But for those who see the corruption of their heart, their need of salvation, and the power that only comes through Christ, Christian, prayer is our life. It's our our breath. Why is it our life and our breath? Because I can't do anything of myself. He must work in me or nothing will happen. Paul says there's no good thing that dwells in my flesh. He even says in 1 Corinthians 15 that I worked harder than any of them. But it wasn't me. It was Christ who dwelled in me. Brother and sister, do you see that in yourself? You have no power in yourself. That In yourself there's only sin, unbelief, and fruitlessness. But in Christ, all these things flow to us freely. Now we might ask the content of this prayer. He says that whatever we ask, we will receive. And sometimes we get confused about that. As we read that, or sang that wonderful hymn today. We, we ask 
for grace. And God gives grace, but sometimes He doesn't give it in the way that we desire it to happen. As that hymn said, I, I asked it in a moment, in a, in a fruitful season, God at once would make me bear fruit and kill my sin, but God often answers our prayer sending us trial and temptation that we might see the evil in our hearts so that we might more fully pray to Him and trust in Him. We, as Christians, are to give prayer, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, for all things needful to the body and the soul. You know, I love the Lord's Prayer, and I'm sure all of you do here as well. But the reason why the church has put such emphasis on the Lord's Prayer is that every one of those things, you can have absolute confidence that the Lord will answer His prayer. He will be glorified. He will make His kingdom come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He will give you, brothers and sisters, your daily bread this day. He will forgive you of your sins. He will lead you not into temptation. He will not abandon you in the moment of temptation. And He will deliver you from the power of the wicked one. We can pray all of these things. And within that prayer, everything that we need is encompassed. And God loves to show Himself faithful to those who rely upon Him. And that's what prayer is. It's a reliance upon God for everything in this life, physical and spiritual. God's pleased. He searches to and fro throughout the earth to find those who rely upon Him. He loves to show Himself strong to those who rely upon Him alone. And so, my contention this morning is that the theme that flows throughout these five verses is faith. A lack of faith. Unbelief will end in withering, in death, in destruction, because there's no way to partake of the life that God is and gives. And we ought to be warned by that. Not to place our faith in the law, or in ceremony, or intelligence, but only in Christ and what He's done. And we're encouraged to cultivate this faith. Cultivate this faith. We, we don't bear fruit as we ought because we don't believe as we ought. Not because we don't work hard enough. I think that we work in our flesh perhaps harder than we need to work. But we don't work in the right motivation and with faith. And only these things can bear fruit for us. And so this text, this withering of the fruit tree, I believe should be embedded in our mind to show us the importance of faith in Jesus Christ as the only means by which we grow and are protected from fruitlessness. And as we turn to the Lord's table, this is another means that God in His grace has given us to grow in faith. We're so dull that we not only need the auditory Word preached to us, we need a visible sign given that as I hold the bread in my hand, I look at it and say, my Savior's body was broken and it was broken for me. When I take the juice, I say, His blood was shed and it was shed for me. Me, we cultivate our faith through taking the Lord's Supper. And I ask that we do that now. Brother Jim.